0: Welcome, Dan. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: I, When I heard that there was a possibility of getting you on, I was very excited because I've seen some of your work that we'll get into. But before we do, please introduce yourself.
1: Sure. Um, so, Dan Richards. Um, and today, I spend the bulk of my time um, teaching um, in a variety of programs at the Rotman School of Management the University of Toronto, um, But before that, I did that, I was very fortunate. I tell my students sometimes in life it's better to be lucky than smart (laughs) because I kind of more through good luck than planning fell into the financial industry and and through the 90s uh, rode the wave, built and sold a couple of businesses, was recruited to be CEO of a public company by some former clients that that I helped turn around and then led the sale of. And and so I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate to have kind of had you know, a successful career, but as I said, you know, I think often in life, it's good luck rather than good planning.
0: Well, I mean, that sounds like an amazing journey that you've had, Uh, and I mean, when I looked at your biography and some of the work that you've done, I was very impressed, and I do want to speak about some of that. So, um, you uh, had a role where uh, you took a the CEO position of a firm, right. uh, where I believe it was five uh, different firms that right. were merged into it. So, can you tell us a bit about that and what that experience was like?
1: Sure. <laughs> that was a challenging time. It was 2002. And so, for those of your listeners that have been around for a while, remember 2000, of course, was the height of the tech bubble, and then followed by the tech burst. And that was a, a very challenging time for lots of people in the tech space, but also many investors who had gotten over-enthused and some advisors that have gotten over-enthused about the promise of the tech space. Because, of course, at the time, we knew it was only going to one direction, it was only going to go up forever. And what that led to was, a, some, some, you know, so the, the firm that, that I was recruited to lead, Karchi Partners, had acquired five mutual fund and life insurance dealerships, kind of at the peak of the market, made made commitments in good faith, but that they just, you know, because of circumstances, couldn't deliver on. And and so I was recruited, you know, to kind of help write the ship. It was a challenging time, but we were phenomenally lucky. We had a great team um, and you know staff that that worked incredibly hard under tough circumstances. And we also had some outstanding advisors who, you know, we all pulled together and, you know, through a tough period, we we're able to kind of, of solidify things. And then ultimately our principal financial backer, uh, which was a cast at a poem in Plasmon in Montreal made a big investment, new CEO, change in strategy. And so I was asked to, after thinking we were going to then kind of be able to, to, once we built the foundation, move to growth, my, my mandate changed to, to lead an exit. It became part of Dundee and then part of Scotia.
0: Wow. That sounds amazing. And the reason I started with that is because I've, I'm have i very, very fascinated by the tech bubble, mm. particularly about how people dealt with the aftermath of right. the tech bubble. And so I, I do want to dive a bit into that. You know, we've just had went from this belief that the stock market only goes up and technology stocks can do no wrong and everything is on the web now to zero. Mm. Like, how did the advisors uh, that you were managing at that time, how did they deal with it? What kind of conversations that they have right. to have? Well,
1: you know, so it depended on the advisor, it depended on the client. And in some cases, you know, advisors were being thanked by clients, like because the advisors had said, look, you know, yes, you know, we know that, that tech is going to go to the moon, <laughs> um, but, you know, we should maintain a diversified portfolio, you know, we look at valuations. And, and so, in some cases, you know, clients were thanking advisors for kind of reining them in a little bit. One of the things that it's the hardest thing when it comes to investing is to maintain your emotional equilibrium, to keep the highs from being too high, the lows from being too low. And that's, by the way, true in many, many aspects. I'm dealing with students right now who are looking for jobs, in some cases, same phenomenon, right? It's a bit of a roller coaster. So, coming back to your question. So, in some cases, you know, uh, advisors had reigned clients, and in other cases, advisors had gotten caught up Mm. in the same level of enthusiasm, and it was very tough. There were some very challenging conversations, for sure.
0: Definitely. And and I think that goes back to that relationship building aspect of the advisory business. I always say at the cornerstone of wealth of the wealth management industry is the relationship, because the reason these advisors are so successful is because they're able to have trust with their clients and then who are willing to give them their assets and refer them. And, and so to he, uh, to hear that, obviously, there were some advisors who were more prudent and who realized that we can't put all our Uh, eggs in one basket, as the popular saying goes. uh, I feel like that's a philosophy that's sort of holding true and seems to hold true through every event that we go through when it comes to the markets and how volatile things can be.
1: Look, one of the things that we know we can learn from history, right? it's not an exact parallel, but there are lessons from the past. And I think one of the things that a good advisor does is able to bring context and perspective from what's happened in the past. And I remember talking to advisors who had to rein clients in more than once. It wasn't just a tech bubble. Uh, you know, we've been there before. You think back to 2007. So again, you know, after the tech wreck, you know, we'd had kind of a big bounce back. It looked like real estate, you know, was going to go You know, straight line up forever in the U.S. especially. You know, we can, if you recall, um, that, that, you know, that's when we had, um, the subprime debt, you know, kind of, of, of no, no, no credit, no problem. Mm That didn't happen in Canada. Right. But in the U.S., and I spent quite a bit of time in the U.S. talking to U.S. advisors. And again, you had clients that gotten carried away. Some advisors got carried away. So, I believe that one of the real benefits that a good advisor provides is being able to say to a client, yes, it looks incredibly positive, uh, but let me point out to you periods in the past where people have gotten carried away and here's what happened, here's the price they paid, here's the regret. So I'm going to encourage us to exercise some caution. On the other hand, at the bottom, so you think back to March of 2020, you know, Oh my God, the world was going to end. We forget that, that, you know, you know, we had that sharp, steep decline and many investors were panicking. And again, advisors, not always successfully, right? Ultimately, it's the investor's money. You have to be guided by their decision, but the good advisors, I had one advisor who got a call from a client who wanted to basically sell all of his stocks, go to cash. Because he'd read something or seen something, the world was gonna come to an end. And the advisor said, Look, ultimately it's 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 your decision, but I really want to meet and talk about this. going not don't want to listen over the phone, want to meet in person. And ended up driving an hour and a half to meet with a client to have this conversation. They had a long conversation. At the end, the client said, Okay, thank you. Um, you know, let let's let's just agree. That will lighten up, but much less than I wanted to. And let's review it again. That was the advisor's suggestion. Let's review it again in 30 days. And of course, 30 days, we'd had a big bounce back. Client would have missed that Mm -hmm. if that advisor hadn't made that commitment. That's the kind of commitment that exceptional advisors make.
0: I completely agree. And advisors are known. Well, not all, but most advisors are known for going that extra mile for their clients because again, they, they end up developing very close relationships. Now you brought up, uh, March of 2020 and the madness that occurred there. And I feel like there were a lot of things in the markets, uh, that were happening. And personally, I used that time period to buy as many puts as I could for a while, <laughs> which was, which was interesting. But I do want to speak about. The the client side and what we saw during that period, which was the rise of this sort of new type of retail investor where it was, you know what, like, we're locked down in our homes. (laughs) Let's just trade stocks. It's something that we're interested in. And people had a lot of, you know, like we I've spoken about the meme stocks before, but there were people that had genuine conviction and there were people who felt that you know this was sort of their time it was time for them to get into the markets and to and to show that they can also uh, make gains and so i want to speak about that from the consumer behavior perspective from the retail client perspective um, in terms of what you witnessed and if you feel that there is still staying power and if those clients um will move towards the advisory side or if they'll stay on the DIY or a hybrid? Yeah.
1: So, you know, that's a great question. And, you know, I spend, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to spend, you know, the bulk of my time dealing with... Um, um, MBA students um, in particular. I, I teach in other programs, but I spend most of my time in the MBA program. My students typically are mid-20s to mid-30s. And then I talk to recent graduates as well. And so I kind of have a window into a generation that's much younger than, than my friends and I are. And we do have some conversations on your question. So let's provide some context first of all. There was a ton of attention to meme stocks, you know, GameStop most prominently, but not just GameStop, you know, AMC, Blackberry. The amount of attention media coverage was way out of proportion to the actual amount of dollars that were involved, right? You take a look at the market cap of GameStop at the peak, trivial, right? Rounding error in the scale of things. So I think the first thing to always remember is let's step back. And provide some context and perspective that being said this was the first exposure to the stock market for, for you know many young investors and you know I think that uh, you know it wasn't a great experience for many of them for some of them if you got in early great but for many it wasn't a great experience and I think you kind of have two responses one of them is well, okay, you know that was a fun ride and need to keep doing that. Others, though, said, "Okay, right, you know this was not a good outcome, so maybe I do need to get some advice. Maybe I do need to reach out to somebody who can provide some perspective and guidance." One of the challenges, though, is that you know, and that we you know we perhaps talk about this, is that it can be hard if you've got. 25 or 30 or $50,000. It can be hard to find an advisor sometimes who is able to give you the level of attention that you need and want early in your career. And I think that's a challenge for the industry uh, and for some younger investors. But coming back to your question, I think it depends. You know, some investors may get turned off, you know, the market or advice. Others, you know, they, this was an object lesson uh, that will maybe set them in the right direction.
0: I, I agree with you. I feel that this was an opportunity for a lot of people that normally may not have been exposed to right. the market to get some exposure. And there were some that did well. There were some that did not do too well. And there were those that, of, of course, you know, just sort of tried to follow the trend and didn't really know what they were doing and just threw right. out whatever they could.
1: Right. Look, I think the real challenge is that Investing can mean different things to different people. For some of those folks, it kind of felt like, oh, this is like, you know, an online casino, right? <laughs> no, I mean, you laugh, but that's what it felt like sometimes.
0: Yeah. And
1: we know that you may get lucky. You may do well if you take that stance in terms of investing. But if, if you do well with that approach, it is luck that that's not a sustainable path long term to creating wealth.
0: I agree with that. And I think that definitely lends to your point about young investors when they're early on in their careers or when they're just starting to save, having difficulty finding advisors. And I think that's where uh, the robo portfolios come into play yeah. and where the sort of do-it-yourself but with guidance uh, programs that are offered um, because those individuals as they may want to participate and they may want advice but again as you mentioned like they're just it's just not feasible at that level for an advisor to take on uh, take that individual on as a client um, but I, I do think it is very interesting when we speak about sort of the psychology of the younger generation and what they're growing up with and what their expectations are so You have forces outside of the wealth management industry that are setting expectations. And I am speaking about the Googles and Amazon and Netflix where they've come to anticipate your needs. I've said this before, but Amazon seems to know what I want before I want it. And so if you are now to have a relationship with an advisor, your expectation would be that they should be aware of what I want. I mean, they should know me. They have all of my money. Um, and uh, why aren't they reaching out to me and saying, hey, I think you need this right now?
1: So let me, let me address that a couple ways. First of all, you raise a great point. I think that, that people are conditioned by you know our experience more broadly in terms of our expectations, and you're right. I think that investors are in many cases, particularly younger investors, not just younger investors, but especially younger investors, saying, like, why isn't my advisor um, reaching out to me because, you know, I, I, I'm thinking about buying a car and, you know, they should know that, right? They should know that from the searches that I make. Well, we've got some <laughs> privacy issues here. Um, and, but that, I think, speaks to um, one of the core attributes of a good advisor um, is really starting by understanding what are the client's objectives and being able to... Everything run, comes back to those objectives. What are your goals? And everything is rooted in those. So, if an advisor is able to identify that you've got a, a couple, and let's suppose one of the things that they want to do is help their kids, you know, put a down payment together for a house, let's say. Well, so an advisor could, you know, kind of check in you know, with those clients and just checking in to see where you are on your thought process here, wondering whether there's something we should think about. So, rather than waiting for the client to call you, you can have, you know, kind of the process in place to be able to check with them. That's a small example, but it stands a powerful example, a powerful signal um, to those clients. But I also want to come back to another, you know, just side comment. You know, I think there is a tendency to make sweeping generalizations among kind of, 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 you know, our gens Z, right? Under, you know, under 25 investors as, you know, kind of glued to social media <laughs> and just focus on immediate consumption, no discipline. Well, I'm sure that's true in some cases. That's always been true. But, you know, I had an eye-opening experience. I teach one of the courses that I teach is actually to art students. This is a business certificate program that U of T offers to students taking arts programs that want to take four courses, that are four business courses get a business certificate. So I teach a marketing program. So I have 300 art students. So I had somebody uh, from CIBC Visa come out and talk. And then we went to Q&A. And most of the questions, to my shock, were about credit scores. And, like, I think about when I was 19 and 20 and 21, would I have been asking about a credit score? I don't think so. <laughs> so, you know, you do have many young folks who are asking the right questions and starting to think about, you know, kind of the right issues.
0: I, I agree with you and I feel like part of that is because they are getting exposure to so much more. And so something like a credit score is something that they're aware of because if you want to buy anything, the first thing to check is your credit score. Or
1: rent an apartment. Or forget buy something, right? Like exactly. you know, if you they know, you know, that generation knows one of the things the landlord's gonna ask, especially in a hot market like Toronto, they want to see your credit score.
0: That's very true. And since we're speaking about your classes, I was very fascinated to learn about you utilizing GPT-4. Right. So can you tell us a bit about what you're doing with GPT-4 and what it's been like?
1: So, you know, on November 30th of 2022, so coming up to a year ago, um, that'll be a day that, that we'll look back upon and say, that's a day when everything changed. Because that's the day Chat GPT 3 was released. And we went from AI being saying something, okay, maybe someday to holy moly, it's here now. And so since then I've been integrating chat GPT three and then now chatgpt four into some of my courses. And by the way, with mixed results, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, you know, one of the courses I teach is communication. And so I have teams of students who will draft emails or cover letters or requests and then I'll get, you know, give them a challenge and then we'll get GPT three to do it or GPT four now. And it's horrible. Right. It's long. It's cumbersome. It's too florid. It doesn't look natural. You say, okay, like what the heck is training it? However, what's interesting is you then give it some prompting. You say, okay, could you make it less shorter, less florid, less formal? And it actually ends up being pretty good. So one of the things that I'm working right now on, I mentioned this course for, you know, intro marketing. And so right now I have some of my teaching assistants that are working on loading a private AI network, so not tapping into all of the info out there, so loading um, my PowerPoints, my lectures, using speech-to-text, uh, an open an open line, uh, open source textbook, and they're loading that. We're going to be testing it before we release it to students, but the goal is to make it available to students to ask any questions. So all of a sudden, any question students have they can put to it, and they can immediately get a response based on all of the lectures, all of the course material.
0: Wow, that sounds amazing! So you're essentially creating uh, your own ch- chat bot to so that students can easily get their questions answered. With the and, and having been in uni, I know there's some that can even be shy sometimes to go out to approach a professor and ask. So the fact that you now have all of this i think is amazing now do you so right now i understand that it's just your your coursework so like powerpoints and different texts that you hand out but, but are also you,
1: lectures right and uh, lectures. everything everything that everything students get in the course is going to be available
0: right but i was just wondering if you're planning on adding additional materials so like if someone were to come up to you and ask a question okay. uh, pertaining to what they're learning right. if if you would perhaps take that and then add it in there as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, I think I do this now. So when I get a question from a student, I post the response in an announcement to everybody in the class. So everybody in the class has a chance to see a question that got put to me. But I see over time that, you know, you have the potential to kind of have every year, you know, kind of a richer body of content. And so it becomes a better resource.
0: Right. Well, I definitely see why you keep getting nominated as a top professor.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> um, now, I I do wanna. So we we were speaking about ChatGPT four, and I wanna speak a bit about AI and ML as well. Particularly when we we because before that we were speaking about uh, advisors and clients and the fact that there is a lot going on within those relationships where there's just no capacity for you to be able to provide all the services that are needed or to anticipate all the needs of clients. So what I've been seeing a lot of, and I I feel like it's so, sort of like puzzle pieces right now where everyone's trying to figure out the right approach and the appropriate way to implement some of these tools, but it would be to have essentially AI go in and just look over all of the client portfolios and look over all the client notes and details, something similar to what you're employing in your coursework. Right. And right. then just be able to pull out, you know, important details and say, hey, right. you know, your client in the last meeting seemed like they were interested in purchasing this right. new car. You know, maybe you should touch base with them to see what right. they've done. Right.
1: So look, I think that that I by nature you know, I'm a bit of a skeptic of hot trends. So I, one of the courses I teach is, is fintech marketing and strategy. It's an MBA elective. And a couple of years ago, when I focus on a few verticals, I focus on challenger banks. I focus on consumer banking. I can focus on online lending. Um, we talk about robo advice, wealth management, but we don't talk about, and we've never talked about crypto. And the reason, principally, is that that I dug into it. I, I had trouble understanding it, and I'm kind of with Warren Buffett that that if I don't understand something, don't want to talk about it. <laughs> um, and um, so I had a student approach me and say, "So where where is where is crypto in the course that you're teaching?" And I said, "Well, actually, we talk about all these other verticals. We're not going to talk about crypto in this course for that reason." He says, "Oh, so you're teaching dinosaur fintech." And I said, okay, I guess so. So, (laughs) you know, I don't regret that decision that when you take a look at today, I think, I think that my students were well served. That being said, when I look at AI, you know, and I look at blockchain, you know, and ML, this is real, right? This is going to be transformative. It's not going to be a straight line up. Right there. I was at a conference last week, and one of the speakers was a senior VP at one of the big tech firms, and he talked about, let's let's do a real-world test here. Let's imagine, and this was real-time, put up on screen, uh, went to chat GPT-4. Let's imagine we're at Tim Hortons, and we're asking for advice on the optimum location for a new store. So, putting that request instantly, right? In a, in a flash, gets a response back with amazing pace. Optimum location, it's the corner of King Street and Queen Street, and if you're in <laughs> Toronto, you know they don't cross. So yes. hallucination, which is what this is called, is real, right, today. But you know, and that's, by the way, why the AI platform that I'm having my TAs work on for this course that I teach is a closed AI platform, so the content is only the content that I put in, right. uh, so that I don't have to worry about hallucination, hopefully. Unless I was hallucinating in one of the lectures. Different story. <laughs> but the point is, yes, there are going to be bumps in the road. But this is going to be so transformative. Let me give you an example. Out of pattern behavior. So if you're um, in business to business, running large enterprise sales, one of the things that you do in your CRM is you establish, your CRM establishes a normal pattern of behavior, and then you're automatically, your salespeople are automatically prompted if there's out-of-pattern behavior, if it's above or below the expected behavior. And in both cases, you know, as a salesperson, you contact the client, whether it's above or below the expected pattern. Well, the same thing can be done now with AI in terms of individual clients. You see a change of behavior of any form, and whether it be spending, whether it be saving, whatever it is. And you're able to then reach out to that client, say, just checking in, just curious to see how things are going with wondering about this. Mm-hmm. And that, that prompt, I know there are lots of issues as, as, so I'm not, I have no tech background. You know, I'm a fundamentally a marketing guy. And so marketing guys say, well, of course it should be easy. We know. It's never as easy behind the scenes. That's one of the things that keeps CGI in business. Uh, but nevertheless, as a marketing guy, yes, that's what we should be able to do. That's what advisors should be able to do.
0: I agree with you. And it's, it's actually really interesting that you say that because I'm not sure if you've heard about open banking. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you have. Yes. But like open banking is something that we've been expecting for a while. And it seems to the deadlines keep getting pushed and pushed. And part of that is because of all the complexity that's involved uh, with that process. But that would allow for this type of monitor- monitoring that you just mentioned, where if you have everything connected from your debit cards, to your credit cards to your financial accounts, you know, you certainly have this very, you know, comprehensive and holistic picture of what's happening. And it's very easy to track. Now, as you mentioned, there might be privacy concerns, you know, I may not want my advisor to be aware of everything that I'm purchasing or what I'm purchasing or where. Um, But again, there's that give and take balance, right, of what you want and then what you're willing to sacrifice to attain that.
1: So let's come back to your question on open banking. And um, let me share my view. First of all, I think as Canadians, we have a great deal to feel good about when it comes to our financial system. Um, I'm not sure open banking fits into that category. So open banking, been around for a while, I think really started in the UK, but it's now spreading to many other developed countries. And essentially what it does is it gives consumers access to all of their information and gives them um, the ability to give another provider permission to get access to the information. That also facilitates the, e- the easy movement of accounts or other lines of business. And so what it does, what it does, is promotes competition. And of course, if you're a successful incumbent, you know, you may not want to make it easy for customers to move their accounts. Mm -hmm. And so Canada is at the back of the pack when it comes to open banking, compares to most developed world. And some of it is, I think, a regulatory stance. So fintech, financial technology, um, is an area where Canada is lagging. So there was just a report by one of the leading uh, research firms called CB Insights out of the U.S. They did a um, um, a global survey and they published a list of the 100 most promising global um, fintechs. The U.S. had 43 on the list. U.K. had 16. Germany, Netherlands, uh, France had 4. Canada had one. Happened to be a firm in uh, out of Winnipeg called Conquest Financial Planning. Ah, uh, yes. Um, founded yeah. by Mark Evans and if people know an avid plan going way back, I actually have a call with him later today. <laughs> but one Netherlands, with half our population, has four. We have one, and I don't think we can feel very good about that. Well, it could have been zero, could have been worse, <laughs> but no. So you look, I think some of that. Is maybe the innate caution of Canadian entrepreneurs, but we also have a regulatory regime and every regulator when it comes to banking has to make a trade off between openness to innovation on one end and risk on the other. And you can say, okay, we want a hundred percent risk. So there is no innovation. Okay, great. There in the short term, there is no risk, but there is a big price down. And it feels to me like when it comes to things like open banking, the regulators in Canada have tilted so far towards risk aversion that they we are at risk of Canada falling behind, it's specifically around innovation and building global platforms in, in financial technology that are going to make us competitive.
0: I see your point where you earlier on brought up what happened in the States with, Two thousand seven, right. the subprime mortgages—you know, no credit, little credit. You, everyone's approved, um, and and the fact that you can put down whatever you wanted because no one was right. verifying right. or checking it, right? And we didn't have those types of issues in Canada because of we are more prudent right. and we do have more uh, regulatory oversight. And so, I I would say that our regul- regulators have done a great job in protecting us, but. To your point, I will say that it seems like sometimes they just throw up too many hurdles in the name of protection. Right. And we do need to go back and evaluate okay, does this actually provide protection? And is it what you're gaining in terms of protection by being this prudent? Is it worth what you're losing, the opportunity cost? Is it worth it? And I feel that's not an exercise that occurs often. But I will say that in our case in Canada, for as far as open banking is concerned, you know, they they are sort of letting the the incumbents compete a bit and try to come up with some of the rules, and also we do have the benefit of seeing what's been done in the UK and Australia and these other geographies, and sort of piggybacking off right. of that, right, and sure. saying, okay, this is how well right. they've done it, right. and now we can right. learn from them and we can try to do better.
1: Absolutely right. So, let me provide some context. I just had a conversation with some students about when it comes to launching new products, are you be better off being a first mover or are you be better off being a fast follower? And so, you know, there are lots of examples in the tech space where first movers prevail, sometimes between what I call network effects where you'll be able to build a massive customer. So, for example, eBay, Facebook. Well, actually, Facebook is a great example of not being a first mover. You know, before Facebook, there was MySpace, there was Friendster, and, um, you know, what you find is that often in the tech space, the most successful companies were not first movers. You know, whether it be Google, whether it be Apple, whether it be Facebook, uh, you name it, right? Microsoft, different story. They were a first mover. Most of them are fast followers. So you can be successful as a first mover. You can be successful as a fast follower. Where you cannot be successful is a slow follower. And it feels like that's where Canada is today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I I agree with you on the follower. That is not where we want to be, and we definitely need to figure out a way to become more innovative. And perhaps it is time for even the government to help along with that, mm-hmm. right? To create some new programs. Um. Now, recently, uh, we launched our Voice of the Advisor survey, and in this survey, uh, the reason. It was our third year in market. And again, the reason we do it is because, as you mentioned, CGI, um, we do sell products to the financial industry, particularly to the wealth management industry. And so advisors use our product, use our products, but we're not always aware of how they feel of, you know, what their lives are like. Um, like I have ex- frontline experience and that was one of the reasons that I moved over. But not everyone in the firm who works on the products does. And so we decided that we wanted to hear from advisors and, you know, like, what are your takes? How do you feel about your business? Where do you see it heading? And this year we had a focus on digitization, essentially. And, you know, how do you feel about your business in terms of technology? Oh, how much technology you feel you have? If you feel you have too little technology, how well you're leveraging it? And, you know, surprisingly, some of the themes were recurring from previous years, such as, you know, we want integration. Uh, What I did, what I wasn't surprised by, um, but was new this year was that the number one priority for advisors was the client experience. They're like, we want to provide the best client experience that we can to... Uh, maintain, to retain, I should say, and also to acquire new clients because they want their clients to be seeing positive things. Now, when we speak about that, when we speak about this digital age and and what's happening, and and you've mentioned the fact that there is this sort of notion that most of the world is going towards digital and always, particularly with the Zoomers, are always on social media, but that's not really fully reality. So, can you tell me a bit about uh, your perspective on this and how you feel clients can achieve this right. when it comes to providing the best experience that they possibly can?
1: So I think a couple of points. First of all, I think it's important to start by understanding where do expectations come from? Where do expectations come from digital experience? Well, they come from the best digital experiences out there. Right. So people, yo, know, you mentioned, you know, kind of Amazon and the ability to tailor and customize the content we're getting. Not just Amazon. You know, if you are subscribing to the New York Times or the Globe and Mail, they're moving towards a similar platform where they customize, uh, what you see based on your preference, your interests. So they're able to provide a tailored solution. So instant. What we want, when we want it, that's what customers expect. And then they sometimes say, "Well, okay, how come I'm not getting that from my financial institution? How come I'm not getting that from, you know, my financial advisor? And there are reasons. It may be related to technology. It may be related to regulation. Customers don't care, right? Same thing when it comes to the one-to-one experience. So people's perspectives are shaped by the very best customer experiences, whether it be walking to a four seasons or a starbucks right like people's expectations are shaped by not the worst experiences they get they're shaped by the best experiences they get
0: that's their frame of reference absolutely and so it goes back to of creating a an experience that'll be memorable particularly your your first one and so when i think about the industry and i think about my time there and about all the hurdles that you have to jump through to set up an account, right. for instance, right? So if it took uh, if it took you a week to open up an account right. or longer, because sometimes there were other circumstances, right. the client's not aware of that and, tech, and they shouldn't have to be, and they shouldn't have to care, right? It's right. like, okay, like I gave you, I signed off on the documents, I gave you this over a week ago, like what's going right. on? When is this stuff going to get moved over? And I feel like we were speaking about AI and ML and technology earlier, but this is an area where you can utilize those technologies in order to create a more streamlined process.
1: So you're absolutely right. So account opening, incredibly painful. And I've had financial advisors um, who, you know, we had a period of time in about 2016, 2015, 2016, when the view was, okay, robo-advisors are going to be a huge challenge to every financial advisor, every financial institution. That was kind of the peak of the excitement. Wealth simple was launched in 2014. Um, and one of the things that led to that view was, I had advisors say, I opened a Wealth Simple account, and I was just blown away by how quick, how simple, how intuitive it was. And I compare that to my experience. And to your point, that's the first experience people have. And it kind of, that's what they remember. That shapes the recollection. So we need to find a way to simplify it. And, you know, I had advisors, actually I had a conversation with an advisor, say, look, you know, I've had to cut the minimum, account minimum, because my assistant will spend 10 hours opening an account, how is that possible? So, an advice I said, look, I can't afford. I'd love to take take on some smaller clients. I, I've got some capacity, but when my assistant says look, it takes me ten hours, right? Like that's tough.
0: That's extremely tough. Oh my goodness, yes. Well, I will say that I have seen movement with account opening applications now this is obviously particularly with with the big six because uh they can afford (laughs) to uh, utilize that type of technology but i believe everyone is doing their best to change this where they're they're having what they are called My Client Profiles, right. essentially, where all the right. client information is now right. gathered, and then you can uh, streamline the opening. But it can still be difficult, particularly because there are still manual processes right. in there, and that may take a bit of time to overcome.
1: But let's go beyond just that initial painful account opening process. Um, one of the things that we know correlates with long-term financial success is having a financial plan and then updating that financial plan on an ongoing basis just not doing it originally but updating it and I've had conversations with with advisors who say when I talk to a client they they say up front you know one of the things that we know this is a clear direct drive outcome of you doing well and so right up front if if, if like if if you aren't prepared to invest the time up front to do this and agree that we're going to update it. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to work with you. Right? That's a deal breaker. Right. Hard to say. But by the way, some clients will say, okay, forget, forget it in that case. But most clients will say, all right, you know, if that's what you if that's what it's going to take for me to succeed, I'm going to take guidance from you. And clients will respect that. Now, that being said, okay, easy to say. Then you get into the actual process of collecting the data. All right, putting it all together, assembling it, analyzing it, the report. That can be incredibly painful today. That's one of the things that that I believe Conquest, Financial Black, and they're not the only one. There are other players as well, are looking to do the streamline. That's one of the, I think, the real exciting um, areas, among many others, where AI and technology can really lead to better outcomes for clients and for advisors by taking something that's slow, hard, cumbersome right now, and really streamlining the process. I
0: agree, I agree with you and it's very interesting that you say that. So I recently hosted a uh, webinar for our uh, voice of the advisor report uh, that's coming out. And I had an advisor from the, from the US, from Alabama, mm-hmm. uh, who came on and shared his story. And he was telling us that before he does anything, he spends 2 to 3 meetings up front before any money is invested on the financial planning portion of it because he wants to really get to know the client, he wants to know their goals or aspirations, he wants them to feel comfortable and so this is the way that he establishes trust. And uh, for those that are interested in the webinar, we'll throw a link to it in the description, but it you know that conversation was very eye-opening because we're sort of obviously there's Meetings where the client and the advisor get to know each other, but it, there's usually always a let's get get these accounts open, let's get the money transferred over, you know, let's just see how we want to invest it, and then he the way he described it, he essentially goes through this entire process that can take a while, multiple meetings just to establish that trust and right. really uh, get to know his clients and for them to feel comfortable and to have a plan for what they want to do before they act on anything.
1: So one of the things. That, that when I talk to the most successful advisors, many of them share that view. There are a bunch of benefits to that. Obviously, as you say, you're building trust. You're getting the clients talking. So one of the things we know, there is very clear data that many advisors believe that they impress potential clients by talking about their team, their background, their performance, their track record, all of those things. When you're meeting with a prospective client one-to-one, exactly the opposite is true. The data is absolutely clear. The more time you spend getting a potential client talking, by the way, that's true of client meetings as well, but let's deal with prospects. The more time you get a potential client talking, at the end of the meeting, the smarter they think you are, the more impressed they are, right? The more they think you care, and the more predisposed they are you know, uh, in a different context, I talked to students about some research that was done at Ohio State, where you had two students graduate, or had one student applying, um, graduating from university, applying for a job that's called IBM. Same student, same role, same resume, applying uh, with meeting with two different recruiters from the same company. And in one case, half an hour spent all of the time talking about what most students do, why they were qualified for this job. In the other case, spent half the time roughly, asking questions, good questions. Didn't say, what does IBM do, but good questions. Who got the job? Who got the offer? In every case, it was the second case where he was asking questions, engaging the interviewer. And so the same principle applies here. The more time you spend engaging with the prospect, getting them to talk, the more likely they are to say, you know what, I want to learn more. I want to learn more about who you are, what you do, how you can help me.
0: It's very true. And that, again, goes back to that trust building and just, I suppose, showing empathy, right, where you're trying to genuinely get an idea of who this person is sitting in front of you, instead of just being interested in their assets, but being interested in the individual and and showcasing that. I feel that's very important. And the best clients realize, or sorry, the best advisors realize that. And I'm sure the clients uh, feel that from their advisor, right? Like, okay, this person treats me like a real individual.
1: Absolutely. So it's it's demonstrating interest, empathy, one more thing. There is neuroscience that when we talk, it triggers parts of the brain for most people. There are there are exceptions, but for most people, that actually are pleasurable. So at an unconscious level, after a meeting when you spent the whole meeting listening, not nearly as as pleasurable an experience as one where you got to spend a lot of time talking. <laughs>
0: It's it's true. I suppose we do like to share our opinions and you do get a bit of a dopamine hit yeah. from from doing that. That's really uh fascinating. Now the other some of the other things that I want to discuss from our survey from the results that came in when when it comes to technology, it seems as though most advisors do feel like they have the technology. And that's not surprising because Pretty much every firm is constantly just doing new launches, right? Here's more, here's more, and here's more. I feel where the disconnect and the research that show this is them actually understanding the benefit of the technology and it being rolled out in a way where it's intuitive and it's very easily implemented into their book of business.
1: Yeah, this is tough, right? It's hard. One of the hardest things to do. And really where we need to go is basically being in an on-demand situation. So we don't have to become experts on technology as advisors or as consumers, but it's there when we need it. So let me draw a parallel. Um, I was at a conference around financial planning, and one of the speakers, uh, a U.S. expert on financial planning, and he said, financial literacy training has been a colossal bust. We've had millions of hours, millions of dollars spent on educating customers about financial literacy for the most impact, for the most cases, made zero impact. So the research shows that you can give uh, customers 24 hours of training on financial literacy, which is a lot of training. If it's not used within the next six months, zero impact. So they retain nothing out of that six months later. So it says where we need to go is two things. One, we need to create a default set of behaviors so that customers are better off if they just follow the default, here's what you do, if you don't do anything else, um, kind of course of action. Maybe we can talk about that later. But the other thing is having just-in-time training. So somebody's about to buy a second home in Costa Rica. Mm. Right? There are some big ramifications. So you don't need to know at all, anything at all about buying a second home in Costa Rica unless you're buying a second home in Costa Rica. And then when you do, that's when you don't need to know a lot about tax consequences, financial planning consequences, accounting consequences, currency issues. And so what you need to do is to be able to access all of everything you need to know at that moment in time.
0: That, that makes sense. And you, you mentioned neuroscience earlier and this sounds like a neuroplasticity exercise. And I, I agree because there, sometimes the, the industries get very excited about providing all this education. And, and it is for good reason, right? They of course want to, want clients to be aware, but it is, also about capacity of the clients and how much they can take and the fact that if you do learn something and then you don't utilize mm-hmm. it, you're, you're bound to lose it. And that's why they say practice makes perfect, right?
1: I will make one exception. And that is, I do think that we, there's a gap in terms of financial education at a very young age, like starting in high school. And I think that's where there's already some things happening, but I do think we could do more in terms of things like credit card debt, for example, which is the first experience sometimes that young folks have. And we all know stories or heard stories about, you know, your kid goes off to university and you know, all of a sudden, you know, they get a credit card and they don't understand that, you know, you have to pay it back, there's interest, it's not like free money. Yes. <laughs> so I do think that there is an opportunity to do to build a baseline of education kind of at a very young age.
0: Oh, I completely agree. I feel that basic financial literacy should be a part of the curriculum. Um, I, when I was in high school, I believe it was starting in grade 11 where we got an option to take an investments course and it was just simple stocks and bonds at that point. But I feel that there, it should, that was optional and it shouldn't be like things like, uh, budgeting and you know, debt management and being aware of how interest accrues on your credit card. So you think that, oh, look, I have a thousand dollars on this. But, you know, if you don't pay that back, you're going to end up paying a lot more than just a thousand dollars. And I feel that, and, you know, there's been talks about like payday loan places and just um, some people consider it fair, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But I feel things like that should be discussed and that, young kids should be aware of it before they ever have to go and even you know try to consider those types of choices and so let me just
1: come back to something you talked about earlier in the context of payday loans so payday loans you know kind of have a bad rap justifiably right for all the reasons i think i think that that uh, it, it it um easy to get kind of onto a downward cycle and you know once you get on it's very very hard to get off So you'd look at that and you'd say, okay, so like people who use payday loans are being irrational. Maybe in some cases. But I read an interesting research study where one of the key things that payday loans do well, maybe the only thing they do well, is they make it easy for people to actually access the loan. So coming back to that user experience compared to opening a bank account and and so on. And so, you know, I think... That that the the more we can take friction out of the system, make it easy for people to do things like, you know, opening a bank account, the more people are actually going to, who need it, use our conventional kind of financial products that are better suited for them rather than alternatives like payday loans, where they, 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 they really only do, in my view, one thing really well, which is make it real easy, right, to apply for that loan.
0: I agree with that. And to your point about user experience, and this is something that again, advisors are, of course, always focused on. And the client portal is a big area for that. And that was another area that was discussed in the survey. And it seems as though majority of firms provide user portals and clients are aware of them and using them, but it goes back to on improving those experiences because they can be very clunky and disjointed, right? right? And a client goes in and they might be looking for something particular and it's not there. And particular, and when you have, when you're with, a large firm, a full service brokerage, right. you know, you, you expect, you have expectations as right. we discussed before. Right. And if you log on and it's like plain HTML right. and there's no color and right. it just looks very boring. Right. Not the well, best. Hopefully
1: experience. we, we've, we've seen some movement on that and some improvement on that. But you're right. What you're describing is, you know, kind of something that, that wasn't, you know, wasn't uncommon that long ago. But let me come back to and, and loop back to something we talked about earlier, which is, Identifying out of pattern behavior and acting on that basis. So let's suppose that you have a client and they really have checked their balance once a month historically. And then all of a sudden that client's checking, gone online, checking their balance every morning. Right. So as an advisor, first of all, should you know that? I think the answer is yes. Should you do something about that? I think the answer is yes. So we should be able to have a. System where when there is out of pattern behavior like that, that advisors kind of have that kind of front and center that they are able then take action. But if you don't know that, right? By the way, the client they expect that you should know that. What do you mean? How come you don't know the fact that I've been checking my my balance?
0: Yeah, I mean, every time I go on to Amazon, they stalk me and then they come yeah. back and say, hey, you forgot something yeah. in your cart, right? Yeah. So <laughs> you would expect something similar from your advisor. And I, I think that's a very good point. And again, the all these firms and advisors are actually quite excited about this as well when it comes to AI and ML and yeah. the, the potential of those technologies. And if firms uh, all over want to invest, in fact, I, I did see a study yesterday where just in like the past few months, the number of firms that were before thinking about investing in AI versus now wanting to invest in it has jumped significantly. And I feel that to your earlier point about fast follower versus slow follower, nobody wants to be a slow follower here, right? They, they all want to get in and they want to ensure that they have an attractive firm because they don't want to lose their advisors either, right? Like firms, clients are the advisors in this case. And so... It, it seems to be that there's, again, a lot of potential, a lot of use cases. But I do believe that something like the scenario that you mentioned is a small win. Like yeah. that should be pretty easy to implement where you have a perfect, yeah. you know, a simple algorithm. Right. They'll tell you if, you know, if they hit this floor or ceiling to notify. And if someone is checking their balance on a daily basis or multiple times a day, there might be something happening there.
1: By the way, that pertains to many things. So you talked earlier about relationship building. You know, I had a conversation with an advisor a few years ago. And, you know, very successful advisor. And he said, you know, like, like, for my top clients, you know, for years, you know, I'll take them out dinner, I'll take them out golfing. Yeah, it costs me a few hundred dollars, but for a top client, that's money well spent. And, you know, they always say thank you, but it doesn't feel often that mm-hmm. they really... See that as above and beyond, but they kind of expect it, right? They know that that you know I'm generating, or the firm's generating significant revenue, so they kind of think that yeah, this is something that's just my due. By the way, you know, some don't even say thank you. (laughs) However, so so here's something that that happened that was transformational. So I was at a conference and at my firm, and one of they they did kind of a, a a kind of a sharing of best practices, and one of the most successful advisors in my firm talked about something he began doing that was huge. Every morning, his assistant would put on his desk a list of, actually the night before, all of the clients that had birthdays that day. And if it was a Friday, it would be that day plus Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. And he would call them. And, you know, just, they just wanted to be on the first to wish a happy birthday, got voicemail. Left the voicemail. He says, in fact, sometimes better still because I don't want to necessarily talk to all of my clients all the time. <laughs> Some of them are going to go on for a very long time. So I'm happy to leave a voicemail. Yeah. And he says, you know, now, I do, if I don't do that with every client, if, I'm, if I've am if i got a super successful business owner, maybe that's not a good use of their time. But for many of my clients, especially retirees, I've had retirees say, you know what, this is probably the only call. My kids are for, going to forget to call me today, but my advisor called me. Uh, so, like, but you know, so I that that that's that's such a simple thing to do. But you think about why does his advisors assistant have to print out the the names of clients and their phone numbers and so on? Why can we not automate this? Right, such a simple thing to do.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree with you and. I th- there's at least during my time there was a lot of list printing right. and uh, there there's definitely a lot of room to automate things and again like to your point of why does the assistant have to bring it up you know why can't the advisor just show up log in and have these notifications right. and say hey call this person or you know like reminders s- integration with their CRM system of even like their schedule for the day uh, because there, there is a lot of administrative work and part of the thing that really kind of was one of my pet peeves during my tenure was the administrative work because right. I felt it didn't add value, yeah. right? You can be spending that time doing things that add a lot of value, but instead you're spending hours working on, you know, whether it be right. some compliance stuff or administrative stuff. And we now are moving into an era where we can utilize technology to help with all of okay. that.
1: Let me just picking up on your point about the CRM comment. Um, talk about another small example of how technology is changing rapidly. So we know not just advisors, every salesperson hates, hates, hates after a call entering in the CRM. Right. What did we talk about? What did the, what did the, what did the client have to say? What do I need to do next time? And. We know no one likes to do this because it's cumbersome and time consuming and clunky. So I was at a talk at Rotman last night, actually, and they had um founder of a company that was acquired by TULUS that's in the business of integrating voice technology. And he's done got a new book out. And the um the title of the book is A Sound of the Future. And the the invitation to the talk said voice technology is going to transform how we interact with clients. We've heard that before, right? Everything's going to transform how we interact. But he had some examples where voice, for example, can populate going forward a CRM, right? So we don't have to enter stuff manually. We can just kind of make kind of, or with, you know, some technology, but in theory that the... Uh, that we can actually record our conversation and it can be summarized in the key points put in the CRM. So we don't actually, actually have to do anything. It'll populate it manually. But the key thing is it'll hit the key points. So with the AI, they'll be able to synthesize and summarize. So it'll be there in a useful fashion. So that's, if we're not there today, we're going to be there very soon. And that's another example of how, um, technology is going to be able to, improve the customer experience, and experience and improve advisor efficiency dramatically.
0: Right. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I was in a meeting just yesterday where this was being discussed about using NLP to for note-taking, whether it be for a client meetings, whether it be for sales individuals, because again, that is one of those things, it, particularly for advisors, when they're meeting with their clients, yes, they'll have a notebook out and they'll try to take notes, but they also want to make sure that they're engaged in the conversation. So sometimes they're like, okay, I have to make sure I take this down and you may not take it down. And now you don't have to worry about that because you can utilize this wonderful technology to do it for you.
1: And think about where that goes in terms of alerts, by the way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we talked earlier, somebody's had a conversation about a, about, uh, a client wants to help their grandkids or their kids. Well, right now the advisor, like, How does that show up on the advisor's screen, right? There's got to be kind of some kind of a manual process. Well, guess what? Technology, if we're not there, we're on the way there, where, you know, you're able to automatically have the most important alerts show up on your screen for follow-up.
0: Definitely. Uh, Now, I've brought Malik in. He's a user experience expert from our product group because I also want to speak about financial wellness and Malik has been working a fair bit on financial wellness. From the advisor survey we saw that financial wellness is definitely an area that is on everyone's radar and they're expanding their services in order to accommodate this to make sure that they're covering off all the bases. And so I would like to sort of speak a bit about this idea of expanding services to be now we're in an era where advisors are becoming generalists because they feel that there's an expectation for them to be able to provide so much more than just a traditional uh, investment management or with a bit of financial planning. Mm -hmm. So Dan, what would your take be and how do you feel advisors are if if there's anything that you witnessed in the market or if you have any opinions on how they should try to approach this new era of trying to provide these all encompassing services.
1: So it depends on the advisor, depends on the client. But my view is that if you're dealing with clients with complex situations, you actually should not as an advisor try or expect that you're going to be able to provide the highest level of advice. So you talk about specialists versus generalists. I think very often the model is that as, as an advisor, you're a little bit like a family doctor, right? You have a good level of proficiency and knowledge on all of the important areas. But where there is a complex issue, you send you know, the patient to see a specialist. Same thing here, whether it be charitable giving, you know, tax planning. You know, multi generational giving. Whatever it is, right? I think that that it's going to be very challenging as an advisor if you don't have uh, an arsenal of specialists. If you're dealing with with kind of sophisticated clients with sophisticated situations, you know, simple clients, fine, no problem. But I think many advisors who deal with kind of higher net worth clients, they just should not be expected to be able to provide all the very best advice in their own.
0: I completely agree with that, and to your point about passing it on to specialists, I feel that we now have the tools where it's possible to connect with specialists regardless of where they are.
2: Hundred percent, and I think the it's a, it's a very good analogy because the way we are building our financial wellness product is really around the client experience, and in healthcare, um, what what we've learned is that when the caregivers have a 360 degree view of their patient when they know everything that's going on, when all the specialists know everything that's going on with the patient, the outcome for the patient is way better than when only just one specialist or caregiver is aware of what's going on. And that's what we want to bring to our clients' financial lives. And that's really what wellness is about, right? It's not really just about, like you said, Labna, investment management or your banking, but it's really the freedom for you to make your life choices and and what we want to do is we want to enable um, the advisor to have this 360 information about the client not just about their banking but about their health right it, enough knowledge about their health so that they have the freedom to make the choice that they want to do if i can just jump in of course i think the parallel
1: of you know of a doctor and specialist is kind of quite apt but with a caveat Uh, you know, typically we go to a doctor, we're sent to a specialist, off we go, right? The specialist sees us, then writes a report, our doctor gets our report. And that may be fine in many cases. But come back to the financial situation. There are cases where if a client really trusts their advisor, they want their advisor to be in that meeting. They want their advisor to be there beside them talking about a complex problem you know, weighing in, asking questions, and so I just think that that you need to be clear if you are going to be bringing somebody else in. Do you delegate it entirely, or do you actually have you, or maybe a member of your team, there participating in the meeting?
0: Absolutely, and that goes back to. Uh, I suppose different teams would have different approaches. There might there may be some who want to be completely involved in the process, right? Mm-hmm. So we want to. This is our client. Uh, we're bringing in. You know, this other person to, to help with this specialized need, but we want to be a part of the process. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that we're there supporting the whole way. And there might be others who feel comfortable saying, okay, you know what? I've made introductions and I'm going to sort of hand it off. Mm-hmm. And so again, that is to your point, Dan, you know, different needs, this, different situations, different clients. The other really interesting thing about financial wellness is, and we've been speaking about this, Dan, is that it's just, it's going to that human element, there's empathy here. It's not just about numbers anymore. It's not just about, uh, portfolio management anymore, but it's really about seeing a person on the other side and meeting their needs, whatever those needs may be. And they're, of course, different. Um, I've had someone recently tell me that they feel they're, they believe they're the sandwich generation, which is that they have older parents that they take care of and also younger kids, right? So they feel like they're in the middle and That individual, of course, is going to have different needs than someone in their 30s who may be single, let's say, right? And so how do you cater to these different individuals? And I feel that that is the question that needs to be answered. And financial wellness is a big part of that, where it, it encompasses things such as elder care and debt management. Um, and Dan, we were speaking about financial literacy earlier, and that's another area as well, where educating consumers so that they can make the best informed decisions. Um, now, I am curious to hear from you, Dan, about if you've uh, because you work in the fintech space or because of your close acquaintances there, you know, have you seen any movement in terms of New products that may be are being introduced uh, to help accommodate these needs that are emerging
1: So the answer is absolutely, right there are let's think about the number one question that most clients have when it comes to their financial advisor. not all, but most clients, their question is, will I be okay? Now, in some cases, they've got so much money, they don't worry about themselves. They've got enough money for them and their kids and their grandkids, fine. That's not the norm. Most clients, their number one question is, am I going to be okay? That's where a financial plan can kind of say, okay, here's the path to your hitting your goals. But then what really matters is not just the initial plan, it's how you track progress against it. And one of the things that when we've had a hot market, right, all of a sudden you track, you're ahead of plan. And so a client may say, fabulous, great. Don't have to worry about saving this year or I can buy that new portion. And that's where, of course, you need to set expectations. By the way, there are times you're gonna be above plan. There are times you're gonna be below plan. What we need to do is, by the way, the plan isn't just one line. It's a line on an upper and a lower band. And what's important is that you stay within that band. And that's a critical conversation because it it creates peace of mind. It has clients feel they're in control of their futures. That's the most important thing an advisor can provide to clients, feeling they are in control of hitting their goals. So let's come back to technology. What technology today, and we're seeing it emerge, is able to provide advisors... With kind of real time updates. Here's where your client is today. So you go into a phone call and let's suppose you've had a big hit in the market, right? You're able to real time before the call or before a meeting, be able to call up exactly where is a client relative to their goals. And that can be really reassuring to say, look, yes, you know, the market, we've been, we've had a tough week. We've had a tough month, but guess what? You're still in the band. You're still on track to hit your goal.
0: That's, you know, (laughs) it's funny that you say, am I okay? Because that is the line that I have have heard a million times now, because it's what we pretty much keep asking is that when it comes to this new generation, and particularly with wealth transfers and with uh, more empowered female clients, you know, they're not as focused on the numbers as their male counterparts were, they they are focused on the am I okay portion. And I saw Malik smiling because he's heard this many times as well. So, Malik, what is your take on this?
2: So, so I, I was smiling throughout this conversation because it, it resonates with, with 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 me particularly because you know our app, our financial wellness app, is it's it's really built on that premise to answer that question: Am I okay? Am I okay to achieve my life goals? To send my kids to education? To take care of my parents? um uh, the entire premise of our of our app is to help the end client right the clients the consumers like you and me um yes the advisors are at the center of that relationship to to uh enable that conversation but we are really focusing on what is the ultimate end client experience that they want to see and and it's that one question that they want to answer am i okay today every time i have that conversation with my with my advisor i want to see that i want to know that and I 100% agree with you, Dan. It's not a straight line. It's, it's a band. It's a trajectory, right? And there'll be ups and downs. And that's the uh, conversation. And, uh, and part, part of, part of what we're doing is to enable that conversation. We are infusing advice at the right time, right? Whenever there is a client event, for example, the client is about to have a child or they've had a child, but we want to infuse it with advice to say, you know what? You should think about and consider opening an RESP. Yeah. Things like those, right? And those are the kind of, advice in the moment that's going to make them feel confident, feel that like they're in control to Dan's point about their future. So I'm really passionate about this and I really think we've got the best product in the market. So if I can just jump up on, follow up on that for a moment. So
1: every client's different, right? We know that. So some clients, they worry, yes, am I going to be okay? The ones that are... Um, you know, have done better. Um, you know, maybe they, you know, they, they built a business. You know, perhaps there's family wealth. Um, you know, maybe they, you know, run a large company. They're no longer worried about necessarily, am I going to be okay? Yeah, I've got lots of money. I know. However, are my kids going to be okay? Are my kids going to be okay, both in terms of their, um, their financial situation, but also their values and their behavior? One of the things, it's striking how many successful entrepreneurs worry about, are my kids going to feel entitled? Are they going to have the same values? So, there's no perfect solution. But one of the things we know that can help is if at a very early age, um, the family members, the kids of your clients, have an opportunity to start having conversations but not with their parents, because no no 17-, 16-, 18-year-old wants to hear from their parents. Not necessarily with their parents' advisor. Because you got a generational gap, plus it's their parent advisor. What they want to hear from often is somebody who is closer to their peers. So that's where I've seen some cases, there's a team member who's in his or her 20s, who actually, they're part of their role... Is having early conversations with you know the progeny of their best clients, starting to talk about financial challenges and decisions and making a budget and so on and so forth. But what does that do? It does a couple of things. One, it deepens the relationship with the client because now you're doing something that is absolutely a hot button for the client. They didn't ask for it. You've offered it, mm-hmm. so you've demonstrated initiative. But the other thing is, every client, every advisor is worried about, okay, what happens if my best client, you know, passes away? And we've all seen stories where, you know, they're kind of the, 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 the accounts quickly go elsewhere. Where what you do is you solidify the relationships with a spouse and the kids early so that you have to worry less about that.
0: I completely agree with that. And I feel that goal planning... And when, especially when we speak about the younger generation, that's where that is key. Where you're planning for a particular goal, will be a purchase of a car, for instance, or you know, I want to hit this X uh, investment amount in my portfolio, and tracking is key there. So having something intuitive where you can go in and you can say, okay, here's my goals, very nicely laid out, good visual, I can see what it is, and I can see how far along I am, and I. I'm completely on board with the idea of these younger team members, because we have to keep in mind that advisors are humans as well. And so they also have certain habits that they fall into, particularly some of the older advisors, they may not be as comfortable with all this new technology, right? They're like, listen, I've ran this business for decades this way, and I've done quite well, and I wanna continue to do the way I wanna do it. And I feel that that is an acceptable answer. And it especially works out really well when you do have those younger people in your team who are willing to leverage that technology to streamline things in the background so that these advisors can continue to run the business the way that they feel they want to. And so I feel that it's it's a bit of a mix. There's harmony here that, that comes into play. And when we speak about financial wellness, I feel that, and Dan, you brought this up, is that it's a band. And... Tracking for me is the key part, and having and that's where you need to have the right technology, and that's where all these fintechs come in because usually they come up with the with like really sleek designs and solutions, and then they might get bought out. There might be a partnership where they lend that technology out, and it is all about meeting the needs of people that are that have different time horizons, right? right? That are at different stages of their lives.
1: So talking about new technology, you know, there's a whole proliferation of them. One of the things we're starting to see um, more utilization of is, you know, essentially online repositories of all of our information. So, like, you know, kind of, because one of the things we've all seen it happen, someone passes away and their finances are a mess, right? Mm-hmm. They're all over the place, their passwords aren't saved, like, it can be a friggin' nightmare. And so one of the things that I've seen advisors do is be proactive about saying to clients, look, I just had a client pass away and unfortunately, in addition to passing away, their financial affairs were not in order and it ended up being really challenging for their family. So I'd like to talk about what we can do to ensure that your finances are, you know, consolidated and in a good state. And so that kind of a conversation has huge benefits. In terms of the client being better off, hitting a hot button, most clients say, of course, makes sense. But again, what are you signaling as an advisor? There's nothing in it for you. You don't, you don't make more money by doing this. So what clients all of a sudden recognize, they're just reminded, yes, this advisor really is somebody who is motivated first and foremost by my interests, someone who I can, I can kind of really, really trust.
0: Definitely.
2: Yeah, and I want to add to that. It brings up an example that I've seen implemented by a private bank, so not available to everybody, but only available to the wealthiest, is implementing a vault. And the technology is available to do that where a client can go in and enter all of their credentials across their most private and their most important finances, right? And and make that information um, available to their loved ones when they pass away. So it's, it's, it's definitely out there, but it's not available to the masses just yet. So let me,
1: let me point out just on that something else that advisors can do to deepen relationships, to advance, you know, make clients better off. And that is have one of the hardest conversations that an advisor can have with many clients. And that is to say, talk to their clients about sharing with, in some cases, their spouse, but often their kids, what their financial situation is. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of data on this. There's lots of research that one of the things that destroys families is when, you know, somebody passes away, the will gets read, and there are surprises. <laughs> and that can create strife and disharmony and, and you know, a, a really... Negative outcome. And now, you know, I mean, bad news may still be bad news, right, after the fact. But we know that by being honest and upfront and sharing kind of the plans and expectations, you know, sometimes you just confirm what your kids already know. In other cases, yeah, there are going to be surprises. So, it makes so much sense. And yet we know many people, you know, especially business owners that are used to control, are reluctant to do that. They're reluctant because, well, they may be, they're giving up control, right? Or maybe there will be unpleasant conversations. That's where an advisor can play a pivotal role. And I remember having a conversation with a uh, very successful advisor in the U.S. running a $25 billion, that's, B with a, that's billion with a B, and that's U.S. dollars, so real money. <laughs> uh, and he said, one of the things that I do is that I say to my clients, look, we need to have this conversation. I'm happy to work with you. Chair the meeting. Walk people through the process. By the way, we don't have to talk about everything. Here's an agenda. You identify the things you feel comfortable talking about, and so you still maintain some control. But you start bringing your family members, you know, along with it, so that they are less likely to be surprised, you know, at some future point.
0: That's very true, and and I feel that, you know, it's sort of the nature of that business is having difficult conversations. Uh, and obviously, when it comes to finances, um, parents can be very reluctant to share certain information with their children. But it is something that does need to be done, particularly for the reasons that you mentioned, Dan, where, you know, unfortunately, sometimes unexpected tragedies do strike. And it, it's it can be a bit of a mess if things are not in order and of course if it's unexpected then there's a good chance that things are not in order Um, and so being upfront and honest about these conversations is really important i do want to shift it slightly because another part of this whole area of financial wellness is savings and i i look at the stats in canada i look at the stats in the u.s and it's not the best picture where you know i keep hearing from the u.s for instance i keep hearing that most people are not even able to handle a $500 right. emergency. And, and that's very unfortunate, but there are programs that right. are trying to improve right. these numbers and right. to, to help these individuals.
1: So absolutely. So yes, there are people who unfortunately are close to the margin and that, that's a real issue and it creates all kinds of challenges and stressors and so on. I wouldn't say that's typically the profile of the kind of client most advisors deal with. That's just the reality. But to your point about savings, I, I recently read a really interesting article in Barrons. So you know there is a kind of a broad perception that millennials are wastrels. You know they're they're kind of living the high life, and and boomers were the really super responsible savers. So what's interesting is that the research is that millennials in the U.S. have saved a higher percentage of their retirement needs than boomers have. Now. Maybe boomers, you could say, well, they're later on, they don't need the savings, some of them have already retired. But why is that? And it's attributed to one thing in particular. So, starting about 20 years ago, there was an innovation around um, um, 401ks, which in the US are essentially company savings plans. And it was initiated by Richard Taylor, who recently won the Nobel Prize in Economics, he teaches at the University of Chicago, addressing the issue of savings. And the traditional savings rate was about 3% of your income, not high enough. And by making a couple of changes, they were able to that have now been embedded in the savings plans, they were able to take 3% to 13.5% to quadruple it, called Save More Tomorrow. And it all it's all about a couple of things. Defaults. So changing what the norm is. So historically, when you sign up, when you, you know, you do payroll, you know, they say, okay, you want to save 3%, fine, check here. What happens if you say you want to save 6%? You can reduce and increase it. Most people say, sure, fine, check here. Just by changing the default, you change behavior. But then critically, what they also did is said, now, would you be interested on your next paycheck, the pay increase, allocating half of it or 60% of it to increase your savings? Most people say, yes, that's our norm here and by changing the default and by deferring the commitment. So the commitment is, and we're not asking you to save more today. It's out of your future increases. They were able to quadruple savings rates from 35 to 13.5%. So those are the kinds of things that we now have levers to move. And by, by doing things like thinking about how do we automate savings, for example. How do we make savings something that, you know, if you go way back to David Chilton, the wealthy barber, one of his principal precepts was pay yourself first. And so there are some simple tools. We talk about new things, fintech. There are some things that have been around for a long time. All we have to do is execute them, help clients execute them, and clients will be better off.
0: I am constantly amazed by the things that can, that default can accomplish it's uh, quite powerful. Um, now, on the on this topic of savings, Malik, do you have any thoughts?
2: I I, I do have some thoughts on on uh, what's available today. Right to your point around the power of defaults, um, that there's there's many financial institutions today, and these are not neo banks. They've been around for a while that provide solutions to enable you to save these, and they do it by default, taking away right from your paycheck. To, to Dan's point, um, but but it's really Know, can they can they impose that default on you as a client? What is it going to need for them to do that, to do that in your best interest? And I think that's where, uh, in my mind, at least the financial wellness picture comes in, where uh, earlier you spoke about you know, the, the client engagement model, whether it's hybrid, whether it's self-serve. So it, it, to me, it's a spectrum. And in, in that self-serve spectrum, or the, the for at least the folks who cannot, quote unquote, afford an advisor, These FIs, they have, they have, they have the tools to do it. They have the tools to, um, enable clients to, to increase their savings. And, and really, you know, financial wellness, financial planning is a means to do that. So
1: look, there are a couple of solutions. There's no perfect solution, but one of them is framing it in terms of saying, here's what most people do. So, as soon as you say, here's what most people in your situations do, most people say, okay, well, if that's what most people in my situation do, I should do it as well. But the other thing is opt-in compared to opt-out. So, you know, like, like the data is very clear that, um, and Dan Ariely at Duke has done research on um, commitment to agree to organ transplants in the event of an accident. Um, looks at countries like Germany, where 3%, Austria, 99%. All right. Similar shifts, you know, Netherlands and Belgium. How, how is that possible? Opt in versus opt out. So the high, uh, organ donation countries are the ones where automatically you're signed up to, you know, commit to, uh, if there's an accident, organ donation, unless you opt out. Opt, you know, the other model, which is what we have in the US and Canada, by the way is an opt-in model where we aren't committed to organ donation unless we opt-in. And so that that model applies to so many things. So, for example, you can build an opt-out model. Here is what most people in your situation are doing. They're committing to commit X percent of their salary. Would you like to do that? If not, click here, opt-out, but otherwise, that's what we'll do.
0: Right.
2: Yeah. And if I can add to that very quickly, I'm going to bring it back to wealth management and technology, the power of defaults. Um, you know, one, one example I have from uh, earlier, we were talking about a client portal and, and, and many advisors, um, are reluctant to offer a client portal to their clients because they think it's going to take away, take away the value that they offer. Whereas in reality, when you, when you give clients access to, whether it's their plan or whether it's their investment portfolio, by default, um, the result is actually it deepens the engagement. It deepens the relationship with the advisor and the client because now the conversation is not around, hey, here is how you did, but it's around, okay, what can we do better now, right? Now let's think about that client portal. What else could we do? So we know that
1: in many cases, people say, all right, if you have any questions, here's our FAQ. People hate FAQs. Right? They're kludgy, they're uncomfortable. Suppose we created a, just kind of a a box where you could put your question. No matter what the question is, you put your question in, you get the answer to your question. Right? We, you know, that's what we're doing in this course I mentioned earlier. Right? Hmm. Students don't have to scroll through lecture notes. They can ask the question, they get an answer. So, two things happen. One, clients are going to ask more questions because it becomes easier. But now the advisor can actually monitor what questions are being asked. And so as a result, by making it easy for clients to ask questions, things that are below the surface they may be worried about, they may be reluctant to talk to their advisor about, now you're able to bring to the surface and have a conversation about
0: That is very true. So you can pretty much track trends in, in a certain way of... So if I'm thinking about RSP season, for instance, you know, suddenly all these people are asking about their contribution limits or uh, their contribution room. And perhaps you can even get a list generated of who's asking about this. And now you can reach out to them and be like, hey, what's yeah. going on? You know, do, did you want to contribute? Yeah. Do you have any questions about it? So I, I feel like those could be additional Touch points. It can be a way for the advisor to stay engaged while also giving the client a bit of room to sort of explore things on their own. Definitely. Now, before we wrap up, uh, Malik, you've been speaking about the financial wellness product that I know you're very excited about. So, do you want to give us a few, uh, I, I suppose, a few highlights of it that you feel are very exciting and that are definitely meeting the market needs
2: absolutely I, th- I think um, one of the key things that that we we've done with the product is it's really we're always looking at the at the client as the center of what we built, right even though today the the users are our advisors. We are making it so easy for the advisors to have the financial planning and the financial wellness conversation with their, with their clients. They can literally work with their clients uh, and build a plan together. That's how easy we are making it. That's, that's one thing I'm really passionate about. The second thing I really like is we touched upon it, the MIOK, uh, MIOK question. And, and really the outcome of our plan is literally, uh, uh, MIOK indicator. We call it M-I-OK indicator that tells their client how they are doing against their plan. Now, uh, those are the two really important things that I'm super excited and super pumped up about. And the third thing I'm going to say is this, is, this is what we plan to build for the next couple of years, is, is really going back to that wellness part, which is the 360-degree view of the client, right? To have a holistic conversation. And this came up in the voice of the advisor is, advisors want to deepen their relationship with their clients by providing holistic service. And, and to enable that, we, we, we want them to have that 360-degree view everything that the client has. So that's, those are the three things I'm super, super excited about.
0: Fantastic. Gentlemen, thank you. I've greatly enjoyed this discussion.
2: My pleasure. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you.
0: Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share, like, and subscribe, and we will catch you at the next one.